it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Tom Sumner. Welcome to the show. And it's Wednesday. We're into September already. Can you believe it? Um, But uh, Wednesday means armchair politics, and East Village Magazine editor Jan Worth Nelson joins our roundtable regulars uh, at 10 o'clock this morning or in the second hour of our three-hour tour for two hours of uh, commentary and analysis um, on uh, local, state, national uh, headlines and current events, along with some uh, quotes and uh, my favorite, The X-Files, with uh, Paul Rosicki on the left, Henry Hatter on the right, once again joined by East Village Magazine editor this week, uh, Jan Worth Nelson is uh, joining the group. But first, we're going to talk about the economy with um, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint, who joins us uh, frequently to uh, catch us up and and help explain the economy to us a little bit. Chris joins me by phone. Hey, welcome, Chris. Hey, Todd. Great to be here. Um, Chris, I've been... I I think I saw a piece on uh, CNN's website um, just in the last couple of days that was talking about uh, the pandemic economy, who it's good for and who it isn't. Um, any, Any thoughts on that? Who... Who are, are there? We've talked about some of the people that are that are actually benefiting from the pandemic, which are largely online sellers, Amazon and and that sort of thing. But are there people that are benefiting uh, from what's happening with the economy um, during the pandemic? Yeah, so I think during the pandemic, we've seen a big transfer from small business, brick-and-mortar businesses to these large retailers like Amazon, Apple, really anyone who's selling their products online. So it's really accelerating the trend that we've seen over the last decade or so of people moving from shopping in person to shopping online. So if you work for those companies, if you're a shareholder of those companies, if you're Jeff Bezos, you've won. Um, if you look at Zoom, the video conferencing software that lots of people are using for remote meetings, 
Um, that crushed its earnings expectations on Wall Street a day or two ago. Um, earnings per share were you know, 40 or 50 percent higher than what people were expecting. So all those companies are winning, uh, these companies that sell remotely or allow people to work remotely. And kind of everyone else is losing. If you work in a brick-and-mortar store, you're losing. If you work um, in the service sector, like in a restaurant or the, just hospitality industry in general, you're losing. If you work in tourism, you're losing. Um, just the typical American is uh, on net worse off due to the pandemic. Uh, but if you happen to be in one of those online remote sectors, uh, you're probably doing pretty well and you're busier than ever. What about the uh, the big box stores, the Walmarts and and uh, Costco and and stores like that, where um, I, I, they're they're physically big enough to allow for some foot traffic while maintaining masks and social distancing. Are they faring better? Well, maybe obviously than uh, small downtown retail outlets that have a very small footprint. It's hard to fit more than one or two people in at a time. Uh, so I'll give you the classic economist answer that it depends. So <laughs> On the one hand. <laughs> so I think some big box stores are doing pretty well. Uh, but those are the big box stores that also have a big online presence. Ah. I don't know offhand what foot traffic to your typical big box store looks like, the Walmarts and Home Depots of the world. But I think they're doing okay because they also have uh, a large Internet presence where Walmart stock has gone up um, recently. Um, in fact, it had a big increase the other day because they announced a new program to compete with Amazon Prime where I think for about 13 bucks a month, you could get all your groceries delivered from Walmart, just like um, how Amazon Prime works. Um, Home Depot, even during the pandemic, uh, they had order online, pick up at the store. Also, I think Home Depot is doing pretty well because people are stuck at home, so it's a good time to knock out some home repair projects. So lumber prices have substantially increased. They're up something like 240% compared to the same time last year. Because if you can't go anywhere, can't go to work, can't go on vacation that's a good time to build a deck i suppose so i think those type of big box places are doing okay they have the footprint they were deemed essential even back in march and april and lots of their business could be conducted online but if you look at other big box stores like department stores uh, they're not doing so well uh, lord and taylor the department store just filed for bankruptcy and it's right. going to shutter all of their remaining stores um, there's probably some other retailers that are in a similar position. So I think the question really is, how much are their businesses really essential, if you will? You know, buying clothing in a pandemic is probably not super essential. And how much of it does it face direct competition from online sources? And that's been an issue for department stores in that even before the pandemic, you could buy clothing online. So I think just in general, you're seeing the pandemic really accelerate long-term trends so that department stores malls in general were in trouble before the pandemic and the pandemic is serving to speed up their demise if you will you know there have been some some classic head-to-head uh, -head, uh, big business uh, confrontations uh, of course famously i remember from my youth it was coke and pepsi but um Things like uh, on every corner there was a Rite Aid and across the street a Walgreens. 
and just recently uh, in Burton, not pandemic related, um, the Lowe's Home Improvement Store that was across the street from Home Depot closed. Is, uh, is, is Home Depot winning the battle with Lowe's? Yeah, I don't know what caused those Lowe's to close like that. Um, there are several Lowe's in Michigan that closed, so I think it's possible that Home Depot is just winning the battle with Lowe's. Um, you know, like I said, Home Depot has a pretty robust website to order things, which I think helps them out a lot. I think Home Depot is probably more well-known than Lowe's. When people talk about going to a home improvement store, they tend to say Home Depot rather than Lowe's. But I'm not well-versed enough in the nuances of big box home improvement to say exactly what's going on with Home Depot or Lowe's. But it does seem, for whatever reason, Home Depot is is doing better. Are we going to see many more bankruptcies like Lord & Taylor? Um, I think it's possible. Because what we're seeing during the onset of the pandemic, March, April, May, and even now, is forbearances for paying various bills, various loans. So there's eviction moratoriums where you can't evict renters from rental units. There are mortgage moratoriums where uh, you don't have to make your mortgage payment, or I shouldn't say that. If you can't make your mortgage payment, your house won't get foreclosed on. Um, Lots of commercial businesses, lots of commercial properties are behind on their mortgage and rent payments. It's really substantial. You're talking about 8 or 9% of mortgages that are behind on payments. Um, that's a lot because that's what we saw during the Great Recession, which led to a housing crisis. Something like 10% of commercial properties are behind on their mortgage or rent payments. And something like 24 or 25% of uh, commercial properties that are in the hospitality industry, bars, restaurants, hotels, are behind on payments. So either things start to improve if people get caught up on payments and then things go back to normal, or if people never get caught up on payments, well, then you see a wave of foreclosures and you see um, a wave of defaults, which is problematic because if there's a wave of foreclosures and defaults, um, the lender seizes the property being foreclosed on, and then they try to dump those properties out to the market to get their money back that they loaned out. Well, if a bunch of properties get dumped onto the market at once, well, then that pushes property values down, and all of a sudden the lender can't sell the property for what's owed on the mortgage, and then the lender starts to uh, face a problem, which is just a, another way of saying there's a big banking crisis. And that's what we saw during the Great Recession, where you had this wave of ho- house foreclosures. Those get dumped onto the market. Housing prices start to come down. All of a sudden, lenders can't sell the houses for what's owed on the mortgage, and all of a sudden the lenders are facing solvency problems. So I think that's the real concern with moving forward with the pandemic is that the extended shutdown that even persists to a degree today leads to a financial crisis and a banking crisis, which makes the economic situation a whole lot worse. I can't say if there's going to be a wave of foreclosures or not, but it is certainly a major concern, especially if things don't start to open up soon. And and about that opening up soon, um, are we going to see uh, businesses operating um, at lower capacity for years to come? Or if we're if we get past this pandemic through the the uh, creation and distribution of uh, treatments and vaccines and so on, um, will we see them go back to 
fire code um, kinds of capacity? Yeah, so again, classic economist answer, it depends. So if there's a, if there's a vaccine that's widely available, uh, people speculate maybe by the end of the year, I think that's optimistic. But suppose there is that it's widely taken up. I think it's I think there's a good possibility that we go back to fire code capacity. But it really depends on consumer confidence. If consumers feel real confident after that vaccine that, hey, I could go into a crowded bar again and not worry about being infected, then I think you do see um, that kind of atmosphere return. You think about the airlines, um, if you were flying before the pandemic, those places were always packed to the gills, every seat filled. Well, airlines like Delta and I think United are blocking off the middle seats now just to give people some more space. Um, if there's a vaccine that's widely taken up and people are feel, feel confident that it's working, um, as a result, they feel confident flying in full planes again, well, then I think you see the planes going back to being full. But if the vaccine is slow to be rolled out, um, if people are slow to take up the vaccine because they're like, well, this thing is rushed, we're not sure if it's safe, or if people are not super confident that the vaccine is working, well, I don't think you see businesses go back to fire code capacity because you know, people just are confident in being in those t- kind of crowds. And then I think things get pretty dicey. Um, lots of bars, lots of restaurants can't be profitable at reduced capacity. Uh, the restaurant industry is a very low margin industry. You know, most restaurants that are open fail. Uh, most people who own a restaurant aren't making a ton of money from doing it, you know, unless you're a celebrity chef or something. But you know, if you own like a typical restaurant, you know, you're pretty solidly middle class, but you'll have a lot of room uh, to see capacity reduced to still stay profitable. If you look at the airlines, the plane needs to run at about 75% capacity on average in order for the flight to break even. And if you're blocking off all the middle seats, well, you're not going to hit 75% capacity. So is is it really that work. high? Is it 75% capacity? Because, um, you know, I've always had the impression that there were a lot of a lot of planes in the air and a lot of routes that fly that that routinely aren't at capacity. Um, that might be true, but there's also this government program, and I forget the exact title, but it's something like the Rural Air... Um, I don't know, rural air connectivity program, that's wrong, but the word rules in there, where the government subsidizes routes to uh, very small cities with very small airports. So I think, like, Iron Mountain to the UP um, qualifies for one of those routes, and there's other ones, too. So it's possible that those planes are running at less than full capacity just because they're subsidized by the public sector. But I think before the pandemic, um, your typical flight was running at you know somewhere between 85-90% capacity. So sure, there are some routes, maybe some flights that are less than full, but on average, you know, the flights were pretty full. Um, which Chris, makes sense because Chris, I have to put a comment here. I've got a break here. Can you stick around so we can dig down some more? Oh, sure. All right, great. My guest is Chris Douglas, uh, economist from the University of Michigan, Flint. And uh, we've got lots more to talk about, but we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're uh, streaming us, we have some messages as well. So whether you're listening to us on 92.1 FM or streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we'll be back with more right after this. 
Tanawad there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part. Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, early gate rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian Residence, add $3.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. TomSumnerProgram.com TomSumnerProgram.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, you're welcome. Great to be here. Um, Chris, before the break, we were talking a little bit about how airlines are uh, faring, (laughs) no pun intended. Um, But uh, I I wanted to talk a little bit. We've been talking about how different industries um, and, and aspects of the American economy are faring under uh, the, the current pandemic crisis that, that uh, we're living with. And um, I, I wanted to bring up farmers because there was, there was a huge glitch in, in delivery systems and, and how food was getting to people. But once that sort of ironed itself out, are farmers faring okay throughout this? I think it's fairly mixed. So you're right, there did, <clears throat> there did seem to be some glitches in the food supply chain early on in the pandemic. Uh, but that seems to be largely ironed out um, in the sense that there's not a lot of things unavailable on store shelves. Um, so in that sense, I think farmers are doing okay. Um, there's a few issues where farmers are running the problems, though. First, there are the trade issues that are persisting even into the pandemic, where farmers, such as soybean farmers, saw the loss of the Chinese export market as a result of the trade dispute with China. That hasn't gotten really any better. Um, whatever negotiations there were with China for a trade deal seem to be on hold, probably until after the pandemic or after the election, at least. So they're still struggling in that regard. Another problem farmers faced was surges or pockets of coronavirus cases um, for their workers, um, especially people who have higher workers to um, pick crops in the field. A lot of farming is me- um, mechanized with combines and so forth, but you know various fruits like strawberries, blueberries, and so forth, those are still picked by human hand. Um, a lot of those people are um, immigrant workers who live in tight quarters like in states like California. So there's been <clears throat> surges of coronavirus cases and those workers, which is terrible for the workers, of course, but it's hard on the farmers if they, if they lose their workers. And then there's just been a lot of strange, maybe unintended consequences as a result of the shutdown that has impacted farmers. Uh, for instance, uh, when all the restaurants were shuttered, um, all of a sudden farmers lost their markets for you know, things like eggs, um, beef, pork that were sold to the restaurant industry, and it was very hard to adjust and ship those products to grocery stores um, to meet the increasing demand for groceries with people staying at home. Uh, for instance, like eggs are packaged in different cartons for grocery stores than the bulk packaging used for restaurants. So it was impossible in the short run to divert the eggs from restaurants to homes, so farmers ended up destroying a lot of eggs including add destroyed a lot of livestock for a similar reason, which, you know, significantly hurt their bottom line. So I think it's a pretty mixed bag for how farmers are doing um, during the pandemic. I suppose they're, fair, they're faring 
you know, about as well as everyone else's. You know, the the we just went through the the two weeks of uh, national conventions for the two political parties, the Democrats, and then last week the Republicans. And throughout the Republican uh, convention and in subsequent uh, interviews and and stories, there's this talk of how the American economy was doing the best it had ever done when the pandemic hit. Um, is is that really a fair case to make? Were we in that good a shape before uh, COVID? It's always hard to know what people mean by the best ever um, because there's lots of different measures out there for the economy. Uh, by some measures, the economy was the best ever. Maybe for other measures, not so much. But if you want to promote the economy, you tend to focus on the measures that best support your case. So the measures you could point to for the economy being the best ever are things like the unemployment rate, which was under 4% at the time. Uh, total employment in the economy was at a record high level. You had over 155 million Americans working. Um, gross domestic product, the production of goods and services, was at a record high level before the pandemic. Um, job creation, you know, month-to-month job creation was robust before the pandemic where you have 150, 200,000 new jobs created per month. Um, the unemployment rate was ticking down, you know, a, a tenth of a percent or so um, every month before the pandemic, which, you know, people didn't think possible because lots of economists said that once the unemployment rate gets below 4%, it can't really get much lower without causing inflation. Well, before the pandemic, it was, there, and there wasn't inflation. So by those measures, uh, the economy was doing pretty well. Um, other measures, there are issues. You know, health care remains an issue in the U.S. Um, income inequality was an issue in the sense that you look at where the income gains are going, where the job creation is going. It's going to people who have advanced degrees, college educated, for instance, and that if you had a high school diploma and you lived in a small rural community, uh, you were doing so well. Uh, lots of small rural communities saw their home industries displaced by things like globalization, trade with China, and those communities weren't doing so well. So I think if you look at the big picture, the economy was pretty strong uh, before that pandemic, strongest ever. Yeah, that's a judgment call. Uh, but that's not to say that there weren't problems. Um, uh, but with that said, certainly if we could go into a time machine and go back to February or January 2020, uh, we we would take it. I, I wonder, um, though, if there weren't some things that were set up to to maybe not be such good news when you talk about unemployment. Um, if, if somebody's working three jobs, does that count as three people working? Um, okay, yeah, for, so for the unemployment rate, no. So if you have three jobs, that's not going to lower the unemployment rate any more than just having one job does. Okay. Uh, because the unemployment rate surveys workers and just asks workers questions like, you have a job, yes or no? If no, when's the last time you worked? And that establishes if you're employed and if you're in the labor force in general. On the flip side, if you look at total employment, um, if you have three jobs, sure, that will increase total employment by three rather than one. Uh, so like I, like I said before, you know, the economy is always a mixed bag. By some measures, it was very good before the pandemic. By other measures, 
you know, there were some issues. And that's always been true for the U.S. economy. Uh, but I would say in general, prior to um, the pandemic, you know, the U.S. was at a time of relative peace and prosperity. Um, at least it was from, you know, the end of the Great Recession to March 2020. Um, the, re- the recovery from the Great Recession was slower, more prolonged than people would have liked. But, but overall, um, jobs were created, the unemployment rate went down. Uh, the typical American was probably doing okay during that time period, far better than what he or she is doing right now. And and the road back, we we keep hearing uh, the new normal. Does um, some new normal with with reduced capacities for some kinds of businesses? Um, does that call for a, a, a change in the way we? approach the economy and measure the economy? Yeah, I don't know if it calls for a change how we measure the economy. Maybe it just calls for a change of how we adjust our expectations about the economy. And that, you know, the expectation was late 2019, early 2020, uh, that we see low unemployment, um, large number of jobs. Um, If you look at major cities, lots of new restaurants are opening up, lots of new bars. Uh, the airline industry was just facing its you know, 10th or 11th year of profitability after the Great Recession. Um, if, the, if COVID is with us long term, if a, vi- if a vaccine is slow to be rolled out or slow to be taken up, I think we have to adjust our expectations about what the economy is going to look like moving forward over the medium term. And that you're not going to see large groups of people in major cities going to bars, going to restaurants, working in office towers. Um, an example I like to think of or an analogy I like to think of is you know, kind of think about downtown Flint in the 80s where when General Motors started pulling out, um, all of a sudden you started to see more boarded up businesses, um, you know, redu- reduced foot traffic downtown. And you're going to start to see that in major cities if major corporations pull out of their downtown high rises. You know, cities that bank on bars and restaurants getting people downtown, uh, big condo high rises for people who live in high-density areas, um, you know, they're going to struggle just like you know, Flint did when the auto industry left or Gary, Indiana did when the steel industry started to dry up. Um, I think that if air travel is slow to rebound, um, last year you have about 2.5 million people flying every day. Now you're at like five or 600,000 people flying every day. Um, that's going to lead to consolidation of the airline industry uh, because you just we have, what, four major carriers right now Uh, It's just not possible for four carriers to be profitable with uh, capacity or with utilization being a quarter of what it was a year ago. And it's not free to store these airplanes not being used. You just can't park an airplane like you could park a car and then come back to it in a month or two, hook up the battery, be good to go. Um, The planes (laughs) have to be started. Like each plane has to be started. Apparently you have to roll the plane back and forth so you don't get bald spots building up on the tires. You know, there's just this whole expensive uh, maintenance program you have to do to store an airliner. And at some point, the airlines are going to run out of cash to do that and start to permanently reduce their fleet and you know, start to consolidate routes and maybe start to consolidate companies. So I think if this, is what, this virus is with us long term, the economy just looks much different than what it looked like even three or four months ago. With the airline industry, for example, Chris, if... Um if if companies begin to consolidate, I assume there's no 
one or two companies that could take up the slack from the other companies without absorbing their inventory and staff. Um, are those kinds of reorganizations primarily financial? Do, they, do you end up with the same number of planes and the same number of employees? It's just the dollars move differently? So if you're talking, I think consolidation in general, the reason why there's consolidation is because um, two companies can't be profitable, but one company could be, for instance. So if you see two airlines consolidate, I think the net result is you have fewer pilots, fewer uh, hostesses, you just have fewer employees in general, fewer planes, fewer routes. Um, rather than having an airline that's twice as big, you get an airline that might be 50% bigger than the previous one. And less people so, fighting over the bottom line. Right, less people fighting over the bottom line, right? So there's less downward pressure on fares, um, which gives the, the, the remaining airline more breathing room in terms of keeping ticket prices higher and being profitable. So if you think back, the capacity of the airline industry before the pandemic was maybe just under you know, 3 million passengers per day. And then if post-pandemic... Um, there's only maybe a million passengers flying per day. I think you'll start to see airlines consolidate, reduce the number of planes, reduce the number of planes, reduce the number of routes, so that the airline that emerges afterwards you know, has a max capacity closer to that 1 million people. So you know, that means losing you know, half of your planes, half your routes, half your employees, and so forth. So I think when you have a shrinking industry, that's the kind of consolidation you see. Um, you know, reduce the competitors out there, reduce the capacity to kind of meet the new reality. It's probably just a matter of time before that happens because Congress gave the airlines $25 billion back in March with the CARES Act. But that money runs out in October. Um, and assuming there's no more money forthcoming and air travel doesn't magically rebound to pre-pandemic levels, you know, the industry is going to be in a, a pretty sticky situation. It's either going to be some sort of consolidation, maybe some airlines go bankrupt. You know, most probably try to write it out as long as they can before they can't write it out any longer. There's been a lot of uh, political wrangling over the future of the uh, U.S. Postal Service. Is there any significant economic impact on the existence or lack thereof of a USPS? So I think if the post office completely disappeared, um, that would probably lead to issues in the short term before other carriers figured out what to do. Um, if first class mail just disappeared tomorrow, it would take some time for you know UPS, FedEx, or some new company to pick up that slack. So there would be short term disruptions. Um, long term, I think that could probably be worked out, not to advocate that the post office should disappear. It's just that if there's economic value in delivering first class mail, which there is, I'm sure. Um, someone will do it if the post office stopped doing it. It would just take a long time, or there'd be a period of transition for that to happen. Um, it's hard to know what to believe, what not to believe with the post office, um, you know, given the current political climate. Um, some people say that the president is purposely um, bankrupting the post office to interfere with the election. I don't think that's necessarily true in the sense that the post office had severe problems even before um, 2020. Um, people talk about how the how Congress 
required that the post office prepay um, retiree health care benefits that no other industry has to do. Um, that certainly does, did it help things for the post office, but the post office would be in trouble um, even if that wasn't the case. Uh, the real issue is that mail volume has just substantially fallen. Uh, mail volume peaked um, late 90s, around the year 2000. I forget the exact number, call uh, something like uh, 200 billion pieces of mail per year, something like that. And I think mail volume today is less than half of what it was back then. Uh, well, the post office is all fixed costs, right? The cost of the employees, cost of the office, cost of the truck. Um, those costs are the same if you have one piece of mail versus 200 pieces of mail. So every piece of mail the post office sells is just pure profit for them. And the problem is when that works in reverse, when the post office sell, sells less mail, sells fewer stamps, because that doesn't save on their costs at all. So when mail volume falls, the post office finds itself earning a pretty significant loss. And no one really knows what to do about that. If it was a private industry, you'd start closing post offices, laying people off, consolidating operations. But politically, that's difficult to do because, you know, no congressman wants to see the post office in their home district close. So the post office has just been kind of in this weird limbo where mail volume is falling because people are using online bill pay, email to communicate with each other. You know, but the post office largely has the same capacity that it did 20 years ago when mail volume was twice as high as it is now. Well, I wonder about that online bill paying. Um, I'm I'm coming late to that to that game. So for me, mail was always, you know, incoming mail was bills and and this time of year political ads, and um, outgoing mail were basically payments. Um, is has that reduced um, significantly to the point where? it makes the adjustment to privatizing mail delivery uh, more feasible? Yeah, I think it does make it more feasible because there's just a lot less mail that you have to worry about in the transition. Um, you're right. I pay almost all my bills online at this point. So the mail I get on most days is just what you would call junk mail. Um, political advertisements, advertisements for various businesses, you know, those um, those shopper ads that are full of coupons. Right. That, that's kind of about it. Um, so that's one reason why mail volume is so much lower now than it was 20 years ago. So I think that does make it more feasible to you know, privatize the post office if that's the way you wanted to go. But whether you privatize the post office or not, I think the fact remains that there's just less of a need for capacity of the post office now compared to, to back then. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the issues being seen by the post office. It's the same with the check companies, too. You know, 20 years ago, people are writing a record number of checks. And now check volume is down something like 75 80% because people are just paying things online without writing a check. I can't even remember the last time I wrote a check. So there's a lot fewer check companies out there now compared to 20 or 25 years ago. Um, you know, check lawyer capacity at the Federal Reserve is a lot lower now than it was 20, 25 years ago. So as people's habits change, um, the, the people who serve those habits uh, change as well. It's just is it a slow change or a pretty rapid change? With the post office, it seems to be a fairly slow change. 
We just have a few minutes left, Chris, but I, I would like uh, to have you spend that time, if you could, sort of um, predicting uh, whether or not there's there's a formula for businesses that are um, restarting, and, and do you have any sense for how long it takes for them to recover from the, the downturn this pandemic has created? It's so hard to say because so much of it depends on consumer confidence. Are consumers confident to go back into a business or not? If you look at fitness centers, um, they've been shuttered for a while during the pandemic. Um, I think less than half of the gym goers are back after the fitness centers reopen. Part of that's because they're still worried about the virus. Part of it is because during the two or three months the fitness centers were closed, people built their own home gyms, found other ways to exercise. So it's really hard to give a blanket formula about how quickly do things come back because it just so much depends on do consumers feel safe going back or have consumers found other options about what to do now that the businesses have been closed. So the safer consumers feel, the fewer options consumers have available to them, the quicker the businesses are to rebound. I think that's an issue with the prolonged shutdown is the longer businesses shut down, the more options consumers find to replace that business, which makes them just slower to return. I think that's a worry about sports too, right? Sports have been, were off TV for a while during the shutdown and, you know, sports fans might've found something else to do with their time. So they might be slow to return to sports now that sports are back on TV, which might explain why, you know, ratings for various sports leagues like the NBA are down. Consumers just find other options. So, it's, like I said, hard to give a blanket formula, but those are the two big variables that, de- that determine how quickly a business is to rebound. You know, consumer safety, and then do consumers have op- other options that they start to use and, and as a result are, are unlikely to stop utilizing. Well, Chris, um, as always, thanks for spending this time with me. I look forward to our next, uh, our next chat. Yeah, so do I, Tom. It's always great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. You too. That was uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint, and we will have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Good evening and welcome to the Money Program. Tonight on the Money Program, we're going to look at money. Lots of it on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fivers stuffed into bulging wallets, nice, crisp, clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward calliculated banknotes, filigree copper plating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges, rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. Sorry, but I love money. All money. I've always wanted money to handle, to touch the smell of the rainwashed florin, the lure of the lira, the glitter and the glory of the guinea, the romance of the rouble, the feel of the franc, the heel of the Deutschmark, the cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc, and the sunburned splendor of the Australian dollar. I've got. Ninety thousand pounds in my pajamas. I've got forty thousand French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. 
Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. Nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the fortunes of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. But it's money, money, money makes the world go. Money, 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 money. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood 
or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. More than one audience has been taken unaware by the humor of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Here is Senator Goldwater accepting the nomination for President of the United States at the annual mock convention of Washington's exclusive Alfalfa Club. Well, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me since Walter Ruther made me an honorary auto worker. (laughs) Gentlemen, gentlemen, if my voice trembles a little at this historic moment, I'm sure you'll understand. It takes my breath away, even though I feel the White House is now ready for me since Jacqueline remodeled it in an 18th century decor. (laughs) And frankly, I, I feel it's a double honor since I've never even been to Harvard. But members of this convention, this has been a genuine draft, not just the kind felt by reservists. And I've, and I've yielded to it in the sincere belief that no man with a drop of patriotism in his veins could turn down such a golden opportunity to advance his family. Uh, of course, the, the Goldwater clan is not as large as the Kennedy clan, and my brother Bob doesn't want to be in government. He promised Dad he'd go straight. (laughs) And I wouldn't be truthful if I said that I was fully qualified for the office. I don't play the piano. I seldom play golf, and I never play touch football. But I hope you'll find it in your hearts to accept a president who just sits behind a desk and works. Now, I must take note of the fact hear that my opponents call me a conservative. If I understand the word correctly, it means to conserve. Well then, I'm just trying to live up to my name and conserve two things that most need conserving in this country, gold and water. me to turn to my campaign platform, but before I do that, I just want to say that I don't apologize for being a conservative. I can remember where the conservative and mother were clean words. <laughs> but as you all know, 
I've argued for some time that we should do away with the cumbersome and lengthy, unmeaningful and platitudinous promises that the platforms of both parties have become. We need bold, brief statements that all Americans can understand. Now, the first plank fits neatly on one page, but I think it's basically sound and honest. It will mean the same thing to you whether you live in the North or the South, whether you're a farmer in Maine or an industrial worker in California. It says, and I ask you to pay close attention, elect Goldwater. (laughs) Now, gentlemen, that's it. No nonsense, no shilly-shallying, no hair-splitting. Just elect Goldwater. It's got a nice ring to it that I sort of like. And is there anyone, from the highest to the lowest, from the ordinary school child to the lowliest Harvard professor, who can possibly mistake this meeting? I'll go even further. Is there anyone in this convention hall who doesn't understand it? (laughs) Now, members of this convention, the other two planks deal with labor, education, foreign policy, and the farm problem. Here's plank number two. Elect Goldwater. (laughs) Now, you may notice a certain similarity between the first plank and the second. And I want you to know that that was deliberate. It's been my experience that the public is confused if you offer too many issues. The thing to do is to get a hold of a good one and stick to it. Hammer it home. Repetition, gentlemen, is the way Madison Avenue sells toothpaste and soap, and it's the way the new frontier stays in the limelight. But when repetition occurs at the White House, and it has since 1932, it's not a sales pitch. It's a giveaway. You don't even have to guess the price. And now, gentlemen, for the final plank. Plank number three. This is the bell ringer, and it's even shorter. It just says, ditto. (laughs) There, gentlemen, I suggest that you have a platform in five words. Elect Goldwater, elect Goldwater, ditto. Just to keep things symmetrical, I think I'll hold the budget down to five figures. Jane Mansfield's for openers, and I'll accept nominations for the other four. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here!